Good morning, St. Pete's. Well, as Richard said, I'm the rector or lead pastor of St. Timothy's Church, and I want to bring you uh, warm greetings in the Lord from St. Timothy's. And I want to tell you, and Richard can testify to this, that we pray for you guys every week uh, in our prayers to the people. So you're always in our hearts on Saturday nights, which is when we worship. Uh, we pray for you every week. And I also want to thank you for giving us Richard <laughs> halftime. Uh, Richard has been a huge help to me and a blessing uh, to our church, providing much-needed clergy support at St. Tim's. And as you know, you know him. He's just been a wonderfully positive and warm and approachable teddy bear of a guy at uh, St. Timothy's. So thank you for sharing him. Um, also, you might not know that Heidi prints our service booklets at St. Timothy's when we need them. So uh, we are indebted to you on a number of levels, so thank you so much for all that you do for us at St. Tim's, and thanks for having me today. As part of this series on the work of the people and exploration of liturgy, Pastor Phil invited me to preach today on what's known as the Collect for Purity, sometimes called the Prayer of Preparation. This is the very first of many prayers that we pray in our Anglican communion service, and I'm going to pray it again now as, we, as a way of preparing for this sermon. If it's up there, yeah, it is. Uh, maybe you could join me in praying it again. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. So the prayer we just prayed has been used in Christian worship for over a thousand years. In our specifically English or Anglican tradition, it's been used since at least the 11th century. Originally, it was prayed by the priest, in Latin, of course, as a preparation for Mass. But in the 16th century, uh, Thomas Cramner, who was an Anglican reformer, he retained this prayer and as a preparation for priests and people together, placing it right at the beginning of the Reformed liturgy for the Lord's Supper. And Anglicans have been praying it ever since. So there's a long history of this prayer. And today it's been incorporated into liturgies used by Methodists and Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans and Roman Catholics and others, I'm sure. So we pray the Collect for Purity as a preparation for Christian worship, but specifically as the first prayer in the chief service of Christian worship, that is the Holy Eucharist, or the Lord's service on the Lord's Day, as it's commonly said in Anglican circles. This collect, and by the way, uh, collect is just a liturgical jargon for a specific type of structured prayer, this collect, or prayer for purity, really summarizes the whole of what we've come here to do this morning. We've come to worship Almighty God by the Spirit through Christ our Lord. You're going to hear me say that kind of formula over and over again this morning. We've come to worship Almighty God by the Spirit through Christ our Lord. In this prayer, we pray that we may perfectly and worthily worship God by the Spirit, through the Son. 
just before we get to our, our text, just a little bit of background on biblical worship. Anciently and biblically, worship was practically synonymous with sacrifice. In the ancient world, if I said to you, I'm going up to the temple to worship, you would take that to mean, I'm going up to the temple to offer sacrifice. We read in the Old Testament that God required that he be worshipped through the many sacrifices specified in the law. Now, a number of things were going on in these sacrifices. The worshipers brought in sacrifices as an act of praise and thanksgiving to God for his redemptive love and as an acknowledgement that all that we have, as Heidi says, comes from God and ultimately belongs to him. That's kind of one facet of the sacrifices. At the same time, sacrifices were offered to atone for the sin of the people, to reconcile them to a holy God. And, and, Certain sacrifices were offered to God, but then eaten by the worshipers. So God accepted, but then shared, so to speak, the sacrifice with the giver. This constituted a mutual sharing or participation or fellowship or communion between worshiper and God through sacrifice. So the tabernacle, and later the temple, was the place of praise and thanksgiving, the place of atonement and reconciliation, and the place of communion with God through sacrifice. That's what worship meant in the ancient world. Okay? I should mention briefly here that in the Old Covenant, as now, God expected that these external sacrifices, the outward acts of worship, were offered in conjunction with a willing, contrite, and obedient heart manifested through love of neighbor. Through his prophets, the Lord made it abundantly clear that without a willing, contrite heart set on obedience and love, the external sacrifices were detestable to him. And this is why Jesus was so riled up with the Pharisees. They offered external observance without a heart broken in love for God and broken in love for neighbor. Now, you must be thinking, okay, this is a nice history lesson. What does all of this have to do with the collect for purity? Besides, you might say, we're in the new covenant now. All of those sacrifices are done away with now. Worship doesn't mean sacrifice anymore. It means singing songs now, <laughs> right? You're right, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, thanks be to God. But that doesn't mean that God has done away with worship as sacrifice. The blood of sacrifice is still at the center of our worship, but it's not the blood of bulls and goats and calves. It's the blood that we will take and drink from these cups over here. All of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant have been gathered up into and fulfilled in Christ, the Lamb of God, the ultimate, final, perfect, sufficient, and once-for-all sacrifice. And from the very beginning of the church's life, this one sacrifice has been at the core of our weekly worship. The Holy Eucharist, St. Paul says, is 
koinonia, a participation in, or a sharing in, or a fellowship with, or a communion with the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Listen quickly to what he says to the Corinthians. I speak to you as sensible people, he says. Judge for yourselves what I say. Such a Pauline phrase. (laughs) You're sensible. Judge for yourselves what I say. This is what he says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all participate of the one bread. And listen to what he says here. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Thus, Christian worship is still sacrificial. To be very clear, though, we don't re-sacrifice Christ every Holy Communion. His offering was once for all. But as Paul says, our weekly worship is a participation in that one sacrifice. And now we're finally getting to the point here. (laughs) We offer other things in worship too. What St. Peter calls our spiritual sacrifices. But we offer them through Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice. Listen to what St. Peter, your patron saint, says about this. He says, As you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's Christian worship. I'll give you what what St. Paul says to the Romans. What is worship, according to St. Paul? He says, "I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. So that's Christian worship. In the New Covenant, worship is still synonymous with sacrifice. We offer spiritual sacrifices, including the offering of our very selves to God. And our historic Anglican liturgies reflect this biblical understanding. I feel very privileged to be here on this big shift this this Sunday where you're transitioning into Um, a bit more of the Book of Common Prayer liturgy. It's kind of exciting and confusing, I'm sure, for you. (laughs) But in the prayer of consecration in the Book of Common Prayer, we pray, and although we are unworthy because of our many sins to offer you any sacrifice, yet we ask you to accept this duty and service we owe, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses through Jesus Christ our Lord by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. So in this Holy Eucharist today, which is this whole service, it's not just the part when we come to the table, this whole service, this Holy Eucharist, we come to offer spiritual sacrifices to God 
through Jesus Christ. Now, what do we offer? Many things. And in fact, you already alluded to this in your stewardship section here, which is wonderful. What do we offer? We offer uh, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving through spoken and sung. We offer our time and our gifts. We offer the first day of the week, setting it apart to God. We offer bread and wine, the fruit of the earth and work of human hands. We offer the first fruits of our sustenance, of our livelihood in the form of tithes and offerings, which is no small thing when you think about it. We go out there and labor in our vocations, and then we take the first largest chunk of that, and we bring it to church, and we offer it to God. And ultimately, we offer ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. Now, all of these spiritual sacrifices, these offerings, are gravely and desperately insufficient because they are deeply tainted with sin. They're tainted with pride, with selfishness, with self-interest. As we come in here today, we're thinking about the argument we had with our spouse coming up the stairs from the parking lot and how mad we are at our kids and all the things that we've done this week that have been destructive to ourselves and to others. So because of our sin, we don't, we can't adequately offer our entire selves to God. We can't perfectly love him and worthily magnify his holy name. It's a, it's a poignant word there, that we may perfectly love you. When I hear that word, I'm like, no. That we may perfectly love you. But, but it's true. I'll, we'll get to that in a second. The good news, the gospel is that we offer our sacrifices, including ourselves, as we say in the Eucharistic prayer, by him and with him and in him. Through Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice, our offerings, including ourselves, are made holy and acceptable to the Father. Through Christ, we who come to offer ourselves are cleansed and reconciled that we may commune with God. And of course, this uniting of ourselves with Christ is accomplished by the action of the Holy Spirit. We think that Christ died once for all in the past 2,000 years ago, and we're here. How do those things come together? By the action of the Holy Spirit, who plunged us into Christ's death and resurrection in our baptism. The Spirit comes upon these gifts that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, the Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit is the person of God who actively applies the one sacrifice of Christ to our sinful, unholy offerings here now in this present moment, cleansing them and making them acceptable to the Father. Now with all that, listen again to the colic for purity. We offer our worship to Almighty God by the Spirit through Christ our Lord. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. In other words, you see all our sins and inadequacies and insufficiencies. We bring them all here, and you can see them all. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name 
through Christ our Lord. That through Christ our Lord is not like just saying, da 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 in Jesus' name, amen. We do all of that through Christ. That's how we can perfectly love him and worthily magnify his holy name because he is the one who perfectly honors his father in a life of obedience and of going to the cross. Thanks be to God. So you can see how this prayer summarizes all that we've been talking about. And and now we get to our text. (laughs) Oh, man. Preacher's Mistakes 101. This so beautifully reflects our reading today from Ephesians. Listen listen to these words in light of the call for purity. For through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice also the temple language in our reading today. Remember that in the Old Covenant, the temple was the place of praise and thanksgiving, the place of atonement, and the place of communion with God. In the New Covenant, we who are in Christ, the church, are that temple. Christ is the temple that was torn down and rebuilt after three days, and we are his body. So listen to our reading from Ephesians again. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's temple language. Atonement and reconciliation through sacrifice. Verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. See how Paul's using Peter's language here, the temple language. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are the holy temple, the place of praise and thanksgiving. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And there's the communion piece of the temple. We dwell with God and he dwells with us. This is all accomplished through the sacrifice of Christ. And this is what Christian worship is. So you can see that our songs and our sermons are important aspects of our worship, but that Christian worship is so much richer than songs plus announcements plus sermon plus songs again. There's so much more going on here. So how do we apply all this today? Well, I want to talk for a minute about how we tend to understand church services in our culture. And really, it's no fault of our own. This is kind of the air we breathe. But we tend to view church services as a public service offered to us. We go to the doctor for health services. We go to the rec center for recreation services. We go to Netflix for entertainment services. And we go to the church for spiritual services. At the end of the service, we tend to evaluate it based on how it was for us. Whether it met our needs, what we personally liked or didn't like, how we feel or what we learned, or what was good and what was not so good. And I want to tell you that clergy are some of the chief offenders in this. We are the worst. 
we're the worst. But here's something we've hopefully learned via the colic for purity and via our text for today. We've seen that in the scriptures, both in the Old and in the New Testaments, and throughout church history, up until about now, worship services are not offered by church leaders to the people. They're offered by the people to God. We come to church not to receive a service, but to render unto God the service that is his due. Remember the prayer of consecration. Almighty God, we ask you to accept this duty and service we owe. Now, of course, as the apostle says, everything we do should be edifying. Yes, yes. And yes, and, and everything we do should build each other up. Yes, I affirm all that. And yes, we should be welcoming and accessible to newcomers. And I think you guys at St. Pete's are particularly good at this, right? This is one of your gifts, is making Anglican worship accessible and inviting and unthreatening to those not brought up in the tradition. Good, good. Keep it up. That's one of your charisms, I think. Keep it up. But, but... Our comfort, our takeaway, our learning, our emotional response, our whatever is not the primary purpose of a church service. Out of gratitude for what the Lord has given us, we come together to perfectly love God and worthily magnify his holy name by the Spirit through Christ our Lord. I want to give you a quote from another Anglican church. It was helpful for me. It says this, The primary purpose of worship is not to entertain, inspire, motivate, edify, or instruct. It is to render to God the praise, adoration, and sacrifice which is God's due. In the process of worship, in spirit and in truth, all those other things may or may not occur. The point is not what we get, but rather what we offer ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice to God, together with our praise and adoration. In doing so, we are transformed daily in the person we were created to be, a holy witness to the transforming power of the Spirit of God in Christ. So we come to offer sacrifice to God by the Spirit, through the Son. In the process, we are cleansed by the Spirit, Through the body and blood of Christ, we commune with God and our offering of worship is made perfect and acceptable to the Father through Christ. Now you might ask, well, that's all well and good, but what about my spiritual needs? Doesn't God care about me? (laughs) Don't I have spiritual needs, hungers, thirsts that need to be met? And isn't the church the place to come for that? Yes. We all we all have spiritual needs. We're all desperately needy. We all come here hungry and thirsty, but here's the beauty of it. Our needs are met precisely through worship. Last week in his sermon, Rob uh, did a great job of connecting the dots between worship and the quenching of thirst. Remember that? He talked about the woman at the well, and then it seems like kind of by accident, the, the text kind of transitions into a text about worship. That's not, that's not random or by accident. And Rob did a good job of connecting the dots between quenching our thirst and worship. It's precisely when we take our spiritual eyes off of our spiritual navels 
and raise them up and out to God in worship that our spiritual needs are met. It may be emotional. It may not. We may feel something in the moment. We may not. We may learn something. We may not. But what is objectively happening, and listen to this now, what's objectively happening is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. As we worship, he says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Remember now, we're almost done. (laughs) Remember now the sacrifices God shares with the worshipers. Passover is an example of this, right? The people of Israel are commanded to sacrifice the Passover lamb, offer it to God, but who eats it? The worshipers eat it. The amazing thing is that God gives us back infinitely more stuff than we offer him. And by the way, everything that we offer to him is his anyways, right? It reminds me of like, you know, when you have little kids and um, you want your little kids to, to, let's say your spouse has a birthday, and you want your kids to give your spouse a gift for, for, for their birthday, right? So what do you do? You take your kids to the store, and okay, well, what about that thing? Yeah, I'll have that thing. Okay, we're going to get this thing. Okay, you've got to pay for it now, but who gives the kid the money? The parent, right? So, so basically, the child is giving back to the parent what is already theirs. That's what we're doing in worship. So we, we make the sacrifice, but, but it says in the liturgy, all that we have comes of thee, O Lord, and of thine own, have we given thee? But then it's even more amazing. Because listen to how our spiritual needs are met in worship. We offer bread and wine, right? We, we come, we offer the bread and wine. He shares that sacrifice with us. But because it's been offered by the Spirit through the Son, it's been transfigured. We come with bread and wine, good though it might be. He gives us back his body and blood, his very self. Unbelievable. We offer our sinful, deficient selves to him, and he unites himself to us. We get his presence by his spirit inside of us. Unbelievable. The feeding of the 5,000 is a good parable for this. Right? The people come, they're hungry for God, they're hungry to learn, they don't have any food. What does Jesus say? What do you have to eat? And this kid says, oh, I, got, I got this, five loaves and two fish, right? Jesus says, give it to me. So the boy offers the paltry five loaves and two fish through Christ to the Father, and Jesus gives back so many baskets they don't know what to do with it all. That's what happens in worship. So, We offer our paltry five loaves and fishes to God. They're his anyway. They come from him. But we offer them through Christ. So they're transfigured, multiplied. And what do we receive back? Abundant spiritual food with leftovers. This is the wonderful paradox of Christianity. Those who save their life lose it. In giving, we receive. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. Now here's the million-dollar tough question. And I promise I'm almost done. Have we, whether at St. Pete's or St. Timothy's or any other church, have we 
been understanding church services as offered to us or by us to God by the Spirit through the Son. If the service is offered to me, even when everything happens the way I like it, ultimately down the road, I'm going to be disappointed. There will be weeks where I don't like the songs. By the way, I love the songs this morning when we started. They're all about the blood of Christ. Perfect. There will be times when, probably like this week, when the sermon didn't do anything for me. Okay? There will be times when I don't feel encouraged or uplifted or when I don't feel close to God or when I don't learn anything. So maybe we try another church to get better service. It's like we're a cell phone. I'm not getting good service here, so I'm going to go to another church and try to get better service there. But, but, but wouldn't it be something? Let's say we went home from church today and our spouse or a roommate asked us, how was church today? Wouldn't it be something if our response was, well, together as the body of Christ, as the temple, we offered our sin-laden and insufficient spiritual sacrifices and our sinful selves to God through Christ, And by his Holy Spirit, he accepted them and cleansed us with his body and blood so that we were able to perfectly love him and worthily magnify his holy name. That's how church was. They'd be like, whoa. But listen, this is objectively true of church every week, whether we like what goes on or not. And that's a freeing thought, isn't it? At the end of the day, that's why we Anglicans worship with a liturgy. And the liturgy is not an end in itself. If it becomes an end in itself, it's a form of idolatry. But I think this is the question you guys are trying to get at in this sermon series. Why a liturgy? Because left to ourselves, we will fill the service with things oriented towards us. Left to ourselves, worship naturally devolves into either a lecture on one side or a concert on the other or some kind of entertainment or some kind of service offered to me to make me think or feel something. But the liturgy, again, not an end in itself, handed down to us generation to generation and the prayer that we, the prayer of the Collect for Purity, think about it, monks praying that prayer in the 10th century, right, handed down to us. The liturgy, born out of the scriptures, And the scriptural understanding of worship as sacrifice ensures that worship remains an offering to Almighty God by the Holy Spirit through Christ our Lord. And by this worship, we are cleansed, we commune, we are spiritually fed, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another and sent out into the world to bear witness about who we worship. So knowing this now, and I'm sorry that was so long, I want to conclude by praying the call for purity together again. Okay? And uh, I'll ask you to stand. And, and if you're comfortable, I'm going to ask you to, to raise your hands like this. This is called the Oran's posture. It's a very ancient posture of prayer. You can see that like this, we're offering our sacrifice and simultaneously receiving at the same time. And also, the early Christians interpreted this as a cruciform shape, 
So it's sacrificial in nature. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down here and face the same direction as you. Because I'm not offering this prayer to you. We're offering it to God through Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.